There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Mika Simmons. And welcome to the Happy Vagina podcast. Coming up, we have Dr. Zoe Williams, Premiership Rugby Playing, Warrior Gladiator, NHS GP, Television Health Expert and New Mum. But before she shares her top tips with us, I would like to take a moment to tell you a little bit about our absolutely phenomenal sponsors today, Percy Health. Percy Health is an exciting new online platform providing access to extremely affordable, super high quality cancer experts on demand. Bridging the gap between cancer and wellness, Percy Health focuses on balancing the emotional, physical and social effects of treatment, empowering people living with and beyond cancer to take control of their health and wellness. Abolishing the one-size-fits-all approach, Percy Health offers simple digital access to a wide range of support types from psychosexual therapy, physiotherapy, menopause advice, and so much more. At just the click of a button, you can access expert professionals carefully vetted with a minimum of three years cancer experience in their field. To find out more, go to www.percyhealth.com. Look, then book. It's that simple. www.percyhealth.com Cancer isn't on your terms, but the care you get should be. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human as they explore the differences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also entertain and enlighten. I'm Mika Simmons, and this week on The Happy Vagina podcast, we are joined by Premiership Rugby Playing, Warrior Sky Gladiator, NHS GP and television health expert, Dr. Zoe Williams. Zoe, <laughs> welcome to the Happy Vagina. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful, wonderful introduction. Well, the question really is, is there anything you can't do, Zoe? Is there anything you're bad at? <laughs> many, many things, many things. Like sleep at the moment, <laughs> considering you've just... Well, sleep at the moment, yes, with a five-month-old baby, not doing so great at sleep, remaining calm, not doing so good at that at the moment either. I, I always thought I would be the most relaxed, laid-back mother, but apparently not. I'm quite anxious, so oh. uh, yeah, but it's great though. Thank you for sharing that with us, even with this very wide complex career that you you've had with doing all these different things there's nothing like having the responsibility of someone else's life in your hands is there and that's exactly it I think that's the word it's the responsibility because I have done I've done lots of things in the past and there's I've got this newfound respect for every single 
mother out there because being a mum is just the only way to describe it really is by saying it's just a lot, a lot of everything. But that word responsibility, that, you know, I've never felt anything like it. Almost the fear of this little human and this little precious person is your responsibility, not just to keep them alive, but also to try and make sure that they grow up to be a good person and a happy person. Mm-hmm. I, I personally think that that Lisbon Lyons chosen very well. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your journey to him choosing you in a minute. But before we get started <laughs> onto that, you have played Amazon on Sky Gladiators. You have played Premiership Rugby while you're at university or just after. You are an NHS doctor, which we salute you for that hugely. And you're also now a TV expert for the ITV morning show. So tell me a little bit about how that journey happened for you. Was was there a moment when you thought you might end up being an athlete? Um, I think throughout throughout my life as a child, I... I loved sport, I loved physical activity and was quite lucky that I could turn my hands to most things. But I was a bit of a jack of all trades, master of none. So I kind of played at county level for everything, for hockey, netball, athletics, but never went beyond that. Um, So when I went to university, that's when I found rugby. Um, I, I actually joined the netball team at first, but then I saw the rugby girls out on a night out on a Wednesday. I was like, who are they? They were downing pints and doing doing commando roles, all in fancy dresses, Laura Croft. So that was it. I was a part of my seat and I started playing rugby. And uh, I think had I found rugby earlier, potentially that might have been my sport that I could have mastered. But I was 21 when I started playing. So I played for uni, played for county, and then played for a club called Bladen, who win the premiership. And it was just the most amazing experience playing rugby. And I guess that did lead into then the gladiator opportunity. In fact, it most definitely did because it was one of my mates, Shawzy, who was a, a rugby player. He played for the Newcastle Falcons when Gladiators came back on our screens on Sky in 2018, at the end of the series, they did the whole, you know, if you think you can take on our Gladiators next season, sign up to be a contender. So that's what I did. And it was Shorzy who rang me and he said, um, he said, Zoe, you've got to sign up to be a contender. And I said, well, you know, I just qualified to be a doctor. I was in my <laughs> first year as a, as a junior house officer on the wards. And at first I was a bit like, oh, you know, but I've got a serious job now. You know, what will people think? And uh, he reminded me of my student loan. He said, how much is your student loan again? And my student loan was about £45,000. <laughs> he said, well, yes. if you win gladiators, you'll win 10 grand and you probably will win it. So you should probably do it. And I thought he's probably right. So I actually applied to be a contestant, went along to the audition, did all the physical challenges, did a screen test. And that's when they said, could you come back next week and audition to be one of our new gladiators? Oh, I want to <laughs> cry. What a moment. So pretty woman. That's like one of those moments you dream of happening. It is. So, so I came back the following week and thought, there's no chance that I'll get chosen. But I thought, I'm just going to really enjoy this day. And, you know, there were loads of GB athletes there. And it was just the most amazing day, like, you know, competing in different ways against these incredible athletes. And I made it through. There were six of us made it through to the very end of the day. They sort of eliminated people as the day went on. And the final activity at the end of the day was a, a drama class. 
to see if you could, you know, take on the character and do all that. And then, so we all made it through that. And then we had to do the drugs test and an interview. And I just thought, do you know what? What an incredible experience, but there's no chance they'll choose me. And they did. They chose me and my friend Amy. She was Siren. And we became the new gladiators. It was just one of those moments. Like, is this actually really happening? Completely selfishly. Did you love the drama side of it? I'd love to know what you, how you found it. I, I did. I mean, it was quite alien to me, to be honest. Yeah. I did do drama for GCSE, but it was very much the makeup side of things that I was interested in. I've never been somebody who's performed on stage or felt that comfortable with it. And, and I think they, they were quite sensitive to that. So when we, there were some of us who were very much given a character that we had to portray. And I was one of the lucky ones in that they said, you know, well, who do you think Amazon should be? What is her personality? What is she mm. known for? So you were so like I, me. I mean, Amazon was very much an exaggerated version of myself. So she was, you know, highly competitive, but very fair and would get quite annoyed, actually, if people didn't really give it their all. But otherwise, she was quite she was quite a nice character. Do you think you're a little bit wild? (laughs) As a human being, do you like just five minutes into this chat, I'm going... Zoe's got a little bit of a wild side to her. She likes the women rolling around the floor as Lara Croft doing commando roles. She's like, that's my tribe over there. Oh my gosh, yeah. She's like, I want to play Amazon as me because I am ambitious and strong. Like, you're not the average sort of doctor, are you? (laughs) I, I, I definitely don't think I am what people think of as a doctor in terms of my personality and yeah I probably am a bit wild I mean I've really reeled it back now but when I was younger I had an interesting upbringing in a sense you know I come from very humble beginnings mum was a single parent and I grew up in a working class town but I, I I used to be a bit leery and a bit loud and I remember when Spice Girls came about in 1996, I was 16. And I also, I'm, I'm now friends with Denise Van Outen and I once had a bit of a heart to heart and sort of said to her, do you know what? You gave me permission to be myself. And the Spice Girls, when they came out, I just resonated. I just like, do you know what? I'm not a ladylike, mind you, P's and Q. That's just not who I am. I am a bit of a geezer bird and uh you know they kind of paved the way I think for girls like me to actually be who we are and I definitely found my tribe when I started playing rugby because I've never before in my life experienced being part of a group of women who genuinely celebrate what's different about us so you know in order to have a successful rugby team you have to have a group of women who are all different shapes and sizes, who have different strengths, who bring, you know, different attributes to the table. So, you know, to genuinely celebrate all body shapes and sizes, because you need that to have a successful rugby team. And um, for me, it was it was a really pivotal moment of change in how I thought about my own body and the concept of body image and I think from that day forward, I've really genuinely like, you know, trying to get back in shape now after having a baby. My focus is really genuinely not on aesthetic. I mean, I want to get my bum back. You get a flat bum when you have a baby. And I do quite like having a rounded bum. So, you know, mm. I like aesthetically, I want to get my bum back. But generally, I'm in the gym now and I'm I'm trying to get my strength back. I want to feel the way that I used to feel. I want to feel strong. I want to be able to do the things I used to be able to do. Yeah. So it is about function and what my body is capable of doing rather than how it looks. 
So one of the things that I, I know about you is that before you met Stuart, terribly old-fashionedly in a bar in Lisbon. I mean, what is that about? So he didn't join Raya or Hinge. He just went out. Anyway, so before you did that, there was a moment where you were thinking that perhaps you may need to decide to have a baby on your own because you were going moving towards 40. I wanted to talk to you a bit about, so again, just to repeat, you have got Lisbon here now. But I would like just to rewind a bit and talk to you about what that period of time was like for you, because we have this really wonderful thing on the Happy Vagina community where our women with children support our women. I feel quite tearful, actually. It's really beautiful, but we've got a massive amount of women that follow me, probably because I'm child-free, who are child-free. And whatever I post, they all celebrate each other. I guess that's probably obvious. Of course they would, but it's very special for me. And I would like you to talk a little bit about what your experience was when you were coming towards potentially being child-free or taking action and having a child on your own what what that what that time was like for you yeah absolutely I always thought that I'd start my family about the age of 32 so you know when you're younger and you're kind of thinking forward to the future I thought you know that'll be about the right time but at 34 I came out of a long-term relationship and that was really the first time I thought okay I'm 34 it's probably going to be fine because I'll probably meet somebody in time to have children. But, you know, everybody's different. My friend Jenny, she's been engaged for over 10 years and she absolutely never wants children. She's known that from being very young and that's absolutely fine. And I'm the opposite. You know, I've always known that I absolutely, definitely do want to have children to the extent where as I was approaching 40, you know, I'm reaching the midpoint of my life and I, I can't imagine what the second half of my life would look like without children. I've never really even imagined or thought what that would be like. So for me, it would leave a real big gap, a real big hole. So you didn't ever think I may not have children. You were absolutely just ready to put your foot on the pedal of finding a sperm donor, either through a clinic or a friend and and actually just getting on with it. Yeah. So when I was 38, I froze my eggs. And then, you know, doing that kind of really solidified for me. I thought, right, okay, that's fine. I've done that. I feel like I've taken, I've done everything I can now to preserve my Mm. fertility with the knowledge that, you know, I throw seven eggs. The chances are those eggs won't give me a baby. Statistically, it's not, you know, it's not, it's definitely not a guarantee and not even likely. So once I did that, I thought, well, then that's not enough because I do really want to be a mum. And so started exploring the various different ways in which I could do that whilst being single. My friend Tim, interestingly, ever since we were 30, I've kept saying, you know, if we're still single at 35, we'll just have a baby together. Well, it maybe it's a bit soon, maybe at 37. So Tim did get in touch and, you know, he was still keen to have this conversation and I really gave it some thought, but in the end, it just didn't feel like the right thing to do. So I was starting to explore my options for for having a baby either on my own using a sperm donor or looking at options for co-parenting with Mm. a man who was in a similar situation, hadn't found that person. And then, yeah, I went away for the weekend with the girls to Lisbon and 
how bizarre it doesn't happen these days does it just saw this person in the distance and he caught my eye but I didn't go over obviously because we don't do that anymore so me and the girls sat outside and had a cocktail and just uh, my friend Helena who's been happily married for many years has three children um, and my friend Kirsty who was also single um, it was Helena who said come on girls should we just go for let's just do a lap before we go home you never know you might meet your husband and because I'd seen this figure in the distance when we first entered I was like okay just in case so yeah so I was walking along saw this guy obviously diverted my eyes you can't see that I'm looking at him and as I walked past his shoulder he just grabbed my hand and pulled me and said hi I'm Stuart and I said hi I'm Zoe and he sort of like pulled me back in front of him and then we just chatted and it turned out we're the same age. Interestingly, both of our dads are Jamaican, both of our mums are English and this is the thing that was really bizarre. We were actually living 1.2 miles away from each other in London. I am covered in goosebumps (laughs) right now. It's so beautiful and romantic. It is. And I just feel so blessed and so lucky. And I know that that's what was meant to happen. That's, I feel very strongly that that's what was, we were meant to meet. And, you know, that was the right time. And when you met Stuart, you've spoken quite publicly about the fact that you two decided to have a, a non-invasive prenatal test. Can you say a bit more about that? Once you got pregnant, you decided to do that. That's right. Yes. So once, um, once we were pregnant, I was 40 when I was first pregnant and, you know, knowing the increased risk of complications, especially chromosomal abnormalities in the baby. I think I was quite anxious. I was also worried about miscarriage because over the age of 40, it's almost a 50% chance of miscarriage. It's a very high miscarriage risk. Mm -hmm. So I was very, very anxious and I just wanted to do every test that was available. So the non-invasive prenatal test is a blood test that you can do from 10 weeks where they take the mum's blood and through the mum's blood, they can look at the chromosomes of the baby so they can detect, not with certainty, it's still a screening test, but it's quite accurately. They can detect Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome and Patel syndrome. So those are three chromosomal conditions. Of course, Down syndrome is a condition that people can live very happy, fulfilled life with. So I think if you determine early on in your pregnancy that you have a baby who has a high risk of Down syndrome, you know, there are decisions to be made. Um, but I, th- I think for me, having that knowledge, whatever that decision outcome would have been, we didn't know whether we would continue with the pregnancy. But if we did decide to continue with the pregnancy, I would want to know straight away so I could plan. The other two conditions I mentioned, Edwards and Patel's, are are not usually compatible with life of the baby beyond a few months. So, you know, in that case, we we knew that we would terminate the pregnancy. You can also find out the sex of the baby from that test, which we didn't do. We asked the clinic to find out so that if we changed our mind, we could ask them. So, you know, for us, it was important to do that test because we were at increased risk of these kinds of conditions and the the tests that are available on the NHS that they do slightly later on they again can give you an indication they do a screening test to see if you're if you are an increased risk of these chromosomal abnormalities but it's not a sensitive and you know it's still the only diagnostic test is to have the more invasive tests so when they actually take tissue from the baby to find out so so for us it was the right thing to do to to find out we could and, and you know it is it, it costs about 500 pounds so it's not a cheap test to do but for us it was 
it was worth it. And you'd think, well, we got that test result back and everything was fine. So it's almost definitely the baby has, you know, it doesn't mean, it doesn't rule out any illness, disease, condition, but it does almost rule out these three conditions. You'd think I'd relax, but no, I was still, I was still anxious until I had the 20 week scan and it looked like everything was okay. That's when I started to relax and enjoy the pregnancy. Mm. You've just mentioned the sex of a fetus with those tests that you can actually do early testing to see if it's a a boy or a girl. One of the things that I've been alerted to recently is that people that are doing surrogacy are actively trying to choose whether or not they have a boy or a girl. And I have really mixed feelings around it, Zoe, because I feel really, I feel very strongly about kind of civil rights. I really feel that the best thing I can do is stay open-minded and let other people just do what they want to do, right? And if I get too heavily involved in trying to dictate what other people are going to do, it's generally a bit of a dead end. But do you have any feelings around that that's going on, the choosing whether or not you have a boy or a girl? I think it raises a really quite important ethical conversation because if you can start to gender select your child outside of doing it for medical yeah. reasons, because there are sometimes diseases that would only affect the baby if it's a boy and they can gender select a girl. I think we're getting into really difficult, dangerous territory there because Me too. particularly within some cultures where it is preferable to have a child of a particular gender, you've got to think, do we want to live in a world where there is such disparity in the numbers of boys versus girls that exist, but also we're really saying that we value one gender more than another and what are the knock-on effects and the repercussions of of that for our society. Mm, And in your microcosm of your family, maybe you've had two girls already and you want to have a boy desperately, but if you say yes to that, then you're also saying yes to it on the bigger scale in the countries where there's such deep misogyny. And the difficulty with that whole area is that if you start to gender select, as you called it, then actually I think it puts abortion at risk. And if- I, I absolutely agree. So in the scenario where either a couple are doing an IVF or it's a surrogacy where you're actually, you're able to have a look at the embryos and decide which one is implanted. So there's no abortion going on there, but you are selecting, you know, that I think is ethically wrong. But- Very complicated. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. It's really, uh, really important. And, uh, and I'm grateful. Coming back to still young, but slightly later life pregnancy for women. So when I started looking to freezing my eggs, due to various complications, the doctor suggested to me that it really wasn't worth it. I'd probably need to do three rounds to get like a kind of like two eggs. And I was just, I didn't want to do that to my body. So, but one of the things the doctors did say to me, and I didn't realize this at the time, Zoe, was that there are so many women in the public eye that are saying that they are giving birth naturally or carrying a baby naturally. I'm not sure that's quite the right description for it, but that within women, within the public eye, they're being, they're not lying, but they're being slightly vague about how this baby's coming into the world and that it was giving normal women the impression that you can have children until you're 45. Do you think we need better education for women from a much younger age about the fact that, that until 100%. the technology, I mean, you know, the future might be, I know that the Chelsea and Westminster, the team there have just delivered a baby to a 50 year old woman. So things are changing, but those are, those are the anomalies. That's not the norm. 
it's not the norm. So I had, but it does happen as well, but it's very rare. So I had a patient recently, she was 52. She completed her family many years ago. She already had a number of, uh, I think she had three or two, four children already. And she came to see me because she thought a period stopped, but she was gaining weight. And so she thought at 52, she thought it was probably the menopause. And, and so well, let's just do a pregnancy test. And I expected it to be negative, but you know, we should always rule that out. And she was pregnant and she was actually in the, we had a conversation. She wanted to go ahead with the pregnancy and she was actually, you know, it was a pleasant surprise to her, but, but she is one in a million. Well, maybe not what she's at least one in a hundred thousand. You know, it's, that is very, very rare for a 50 mm. year old to get pregnant spontaneously. And I know, I don't know if we know yet, but Naomi Campbell recently introduced a daughter. That's an example. I think transparency and honesty would help. I think so. I think, you know, if you're Naomi Campbell, you don't have a responsibility to share any, obviously, any elements of your private life you don't want to. But if you're introducing, you know, your daughter to the world, people are going to ask questions. And, you know, she completely is within her rights to say nothing, which is as far as I know she's done so far. And then people can assume. But, uh, yeah, I mean... She absolutely has a right to say nothing, which is what she's done. But I think your question about whether perhaps people are misleading and making out as though they're conceived naturally when they've had assistance, the Mm. danger of that, you're right, is that it does give this misconception that we can just continue to have babies, you know, into our 40s and it's really easy. I think also we have to be careful what we say to people. So many people said to me, Oh, you'll be fine. You know, you'll be able to get pregnant in your forties. No problem because you've always looked after yourself. You're so fit and healthy. Like, but actually, do you know what? Mm. That although it does make a difference, mm. looking after yourself and being healthy is important and is linked to your fertility. The majority of your, you know, your ability to have children later in life is predetermined before you're even born. You're born with all the eggs you're ever going to have, and I guess your optimal age. You know the mm the oldest at which you can possibly have menopause is already preset and anything you do in your life that is not healthy living can bring that forward so you know if you smoke or you have a poor diet or you're exposed to high levels of pollution all of those things can speed up the rate at which you're, you lose your eggs but you know there's nothing you can do to extend your fertility naturally and we need to i think we need to, that education needs to start in schools because We teach children about safe sex to protect them from getting sexually transmitted infections. We teach children about how you do get pregnant to help reduce the the levels of unplanned pregnancy. But one in seven couples Mm. actually have difficulty Mm. with fertility problems and we're not teaching children about fertility. We're basically saying, you know, if you have sex, you might get pregnant. And I think so many of us, I know I did earlier in life until I became a doctor, you know, if you miss mm. one pill from your packet, mm. you're going to get pregnant. You, you know, if you have unprotected sex once, you will get pregnant. That's what you think. Of course, that's not the reality. So I mm. think we should be teaching children from school as well about, mm. you know, what is required to get mm. pregnant and how your fertility looks, how, what you can do to look after your fertility, but also, you know, just people just, you know, that graph that most of us who are in our 30s are aware of where you see 
a woman's fertility starts to decline from her late 20s and then around the age of 35. For the average woman, of course, everyone's different. There's that speed up. There's, you know, people say it's off the end of a cliff. I think that should be an image that is in girls' minds from a very young age so that they know, so that, so that they can plan. It'd be great if we just saw it like planning. It'd be a much better way, healthier way to, to look at it. Yeah. Well, the consultant who I froze my eggs with, she put a really interesting idea in my mind. She said that she sees a world in the future where 20-year-olds will freeze their eggs at the age of 20 because it means then that they're going to get their better quality eggs. So even if you're having a baby at 30, those eggs are going to be better quality. If you're having a baby at 35, the risk of miscarriage, the risk of the chromosomal abnormalities we were talking about. And she said to me, she said, if you're buying chicken on day one and you know you're not going to cook it for three weeks, you wouldn't freeze it on day three, you'd freeze it on day ah, one. I love and it. I was like, oh, it's an interesting concept, it's an interesting idea. I love so, that. So did you and Stuart use IVF with your eggs in the end or did you get pregnant naturally? We got pregnant naturally. We were just so blessed. And when we started trying, we said, you know, we're both 40. I don't expect this to happen quickly. So we kind of said, let's give it six months. Let's not worry about it if it doesn't happen. Let's just give it six months. And once we hit the six months, then we'll start to have conversations about whether we need to think about. And it happened after three months. Oh my God, it's so romantic. You just had loads of sex. We did. <laughs> but do you know what's really weird is we think we know the time that it happened because it was just, we had sex on this one particular day that would really genuinely fit with our dates. And it was just this real, we both felt this overwhelming sense of, emotion and we said at the time said I think that's I think I think that's the one and then we were pregnant ah so so or you were already pregnant and that's where the emotions were coming from (laughs) maybe just to um yeah I mean I think if you had hormones starting to come into your body they would have been impacting him so maybe you you know you were just having super luxurious soul spirit body connection yes so either we got pregnant that time and I thought or it was actually two days earlier when it was like right quickly just we've got three minutes (laughs) let's just go in the corridor drop your pants Ah. completely not romantic at all it was one of those two (laughs) (laughs) just coming back to this and I don't really don't mean to trip you up with this because it's very new to me. I've just written the book for The Happy Vagina. It's going to be out in May 2022. And I've probably got loads of stuff wrong because I'm not you. I mean, it's literally so exciting to me that I finally got someone on The Happy Vagina that actually knows about vaginas. <laughs> I, I'm not an expert. I'm just someone who wants to make noise and feels passionately that we need to make many things that have been held as taboo, just normalise them. But when I was writing the book, I did find this research that is suggesting that women, in fact, potentially do make new eggs in their lifetime. And it's based on the existence of stem cells found within their ovaries. Going back to 2004, when researchers encountered germ cells called organelle stem cells in the ovaries of female mice. And in 2012, a study conducted by scientists from Massachusetts General Hospital and University of Edinburgh found the same stem cells inside of a human female's ovaries. So I think the idea is that stem cells would allow us to reproduce. It's kind of a tangent, really, because we weren't necessarily going to talk about it. And I know you're not a gynecologist, but that to me, on the one hand, is exciting. And on the other hand, I think we still decrease, don't we? It's kind of a bit of scientific hope that we're not quite as, how you put it, was that you're born with all your cells. I don't think this transforms that 
completely. I think for the future of women, especially women, for example, who get ovarian cancer at a young age, this might be really exciting. Yeah. So hands up. I'm not, I'm not familiar or aware of that particular bit of science, but what I would interpret from what you've just said there is on the one hand, yeah, it's, we mustn't give false hope. This doesn't mean that actually miraculously your fertility can be extended on its own, but what it probably means is that this opens up potential new avenues for science to look at, well, if these stem cells exist that have the potential to become then maybe this is a new area of science where we can extend with intervention fertility. Exactly as you said, if women have had ovarian cancer or or women have had other types of cancer that they've had to have chemotherapy and therefore they've lost their fertility. If these cells exist that have the potential to become egg cells of that person, that would be a really interesting avenue for the future. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Anyway, I put it in the book. It's probably going to be proved wrong next year, but I've put it in my book. So I'm like, oh, yes, I'm so cutting edge. I mean, it's really cutting edge. I've I've shaped it around its potential rather than fact. Yes. And I think that's the thing where it is good. It gives hope either way, even if they find that, you know, this isn't going to work. As we get more advanced with technology and science, we only move in one direction with technology and science and it's up. It'd be really interesting, wouldn't it, to project forwards into the future. Probably in 20 years, all 20-year-olds will just freeze their eggs. That'll just be a standard thing. But in 100 years, do you think we'll even have sex anymore? I I think it's it's unlikely we'll do it for the purposes of getting pregnant. Hopefully, we'll always do it for fun. But, you know, looking forwards into the future, actually... Nowadays, having sex, it's probably not going to be deemed the, especially if you're over a certain age, it might not be deemed the best way to conceive because you might actually say, well, you know, I want to use my 20 year old egg because it's really good quality. I want my partner's sperm to be looked at. I want the best one, the healthiest one. I want them to be put together in a petri dish and then put back into my body. So not gender selecting, but or, or selecting, you know, eye colour or but actually making sure that you're choosing a healthy egg and a healthy. So it might be that your partner might freeze their sperm. Men may freeze their sperm when they're younger as well, because even though men can generate new sperm throughout their life, which is why their fertility goes on longer, the quality of the genetic material in those sperms as they get older, still decreases. So I think we often think that when a when a miscarriage happens, it's because there was something wrong with the egg. But actually, it can be because there was something not quite right with the sperm as well. So miscarriages aren't always down to maternal factors. About I think it's, it's a bit less than 50%, but quite often they're down to the paternal factors. We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission, a five-year plan, or an outrageous dream? Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Men. You did mention technology. One of the things that I think is really helping women with pregnancies is the digital world. So you've got apps like Peanut, you know, offered mum support. As a new mum, I never realised how important it is that you actually see other people, especially other new mums. So Peanut is an app that I think it's incredible because this helps you. It's kind of a bit like, you know, the dating apps, the Tinder or Happen or whatever. So it helps you locate other mums or dads in the local area where you live so that you can come together and connect. And the beauty of that is you connect online, but you can also then just meet up for a coffee or meet up for a walk. So I think that's brilliant. And there are some incredible apps for information as well there's one that I'm using called the it's called the Wonder Weeks and it's actually an app you have to pay for I think it's £3.50 and I never pay for apps but I did for this one it's not a lot of money really is it and it it explains to you all the various different developmental leaps that your baby goes through so you know when they're this stage and they're they're really whingy and they're crying and their sleep's gone out the window it's because they're making this developmental leap and explains the various different things that your baby's doing so Lisbon for example at five months has just learned that things can be behind him which is quite frustrating because whenever I'm trying to breastfeed him he's now sort of leaning backwards and trying to look behind him to see who's there but how incredible that that's something that he didn't know before and now he can know Um, and there were some really good apps for for medical information as well. But you've got to be careful because like you say, make sure that your sources of information, especially when it comes to health information for your baby, are reputable one. If they've been approved as a NHS app, if they're on the NHS app library, then, you know, they're pretty much good to go. But just be careful because, you know, anybody can, really anybody can make an app and say, what they want to say. So does the person who's developed that app have the right credentials and qualifications? And if in doubt, you know, Mm. it's boring to say it, but if in doubt, just go to the NHS website and see what's being said there. The thing that I find really exciting about it, Zoe, is that, and particularly because we're both from a similar background, it's like breaks down the barriers of geography. So to a certain extent, you know, one of the things that we grew up with were some barriers around being able to access the same things that perhaps other people with a, I'm going to say privileged, but I think that actually all human beings struggle in different ways. So I don't think that's a very complicated word, but I think that technology potentially is going to allow people to get better support as long as you say it's kind of properly verified, you know, but it also can bring the cost of things down. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I just think back to when I was <laughs> at school and, you know, I used to have to go to a library and pay to actually take the books out. And because the library I was accessing was the, the local council's library, the range of information and books in there for me to select from probably wouldn't have been the same as if I was going to a big private boarding school where everything would have just been available. So yeah, I think you're right. I think, you know, now, especially in terms of information, um, and if you want to, if you choose to want to educate yourself, you can access courses, resources online. There's definitely a barrier being brought down. It gives people a bit more, I've sort of, I feel really like it's a bit of a dance, isn't it? Because I know that recently in our country over here in England, the doctors have been having a little bit of a sort of smack on their wrists because they've not been going back to the surgeries and staying online. And I think that human contact is so important, but also this opening up that digital world is, is giving us and you don't need to book and you don't, you need to book, you don't have to wait for three months for an appointment and you can see people that you might not be able to see. Yeah, I think what's happened in the past couple of years is within medical services, we've had to find a new way of of working. And this technology, sort of video technology consulting online has been been around for years and years and years and years, but we just didn't think that patients would like it. So we stuck with the face-to-face and now we've been forced to go digital. What we now know is that there is a cohort of patients who would much rather do it over the phone. Some would much rather do it over video, but then some would much rather still come in for a face-to-face appointment. And, and I think the majority of GP practices are now offering patients what they prefer. I think it's complex at the moment because, because of COVID and the pandemic, I know, I mean, I'm on maternity leave at the moment. Before I came off on maternity leave, I know that a huge proportion of appointments are GPs trying to look after those patients who are on waiting lists and they have nowhere to go but to their GP. There's never enough appointments at an NHS GP anyway. There's like an increased demand on GPs. And I think a lot of that rage about not getting an appointment with the GP whether it's face-to-face or otherwise, it's not down to the GPs. They're working flat. I know my colleagues are doing 12-hour days, 12-hour shifts at the moment. and mostly seeing patients face-to-face who should be seen face-to-face. We put too much on GPs. You did just mention that you're on maternity. I would like <laughs> to just take a moment to talk about, about that because Zoe, you say you're on maternity leave. <laughs> but I see you working quite a lot. And I just wondered if you could share a bit because again, you've mentioned, you know, in an, in an interview, I read that you said that you're at the moment or you were sort of the breadwinner. And does that mean that Stuart is the primary carer or how are you guys making it work? I'd love to hear about your setup. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I am, I'm the breadwinner in our household. Stuart works full time. And then when I was working full time, I'm, you know, we both contribute towards the finances of the household but I am the breadwinner. So now we have a baby, you know, we've had to have conversation around how do we make that work? And I am working, I'm working one and a half days at the moment. So, at the, and we don't have family nearby. So, you know, when it's, it's childcare, it is down to, down to us. I'll come and look after Lisbon Lion. Oh, please, please. I'm <laughs> going to take you up on that. He's a lovely baby to look after. So we've had to figure it out. And, you know, it started off at the beginning, we did have conversations about shared parental leave. And Stuart was open to that conversation. And then he started a new job at the start of the year. And even when he was interviewing, he was even saying, you know, 
is is there the option for child parental leave? Is there the option for doing a four day week so that I can help with childcare? So I'm very lucky that he was even open to having those conversations because I think a lot of people aren't. Cool. Um, <gasps> but then when it actually came to the crunch, we did talk about it, and he was kind of, oh, I don't really think that that's going to work for what I'm doing with it. What's where he's at with his career at the moment, and what he's doing, he's trying to build a team in a in a new area of the business. So what we do is one day a week, <laughs> I have the 10 to 5 slot and Stuart looks after Lisbon, but he still does because he, he did always promise me that he'd do a four day week. So he's kind of sticking to that promising that he's given me the day, but he still does a full day's work on that day. So he gets up super early, puts in a shift before 10 o'clock. And because a lot of his clients are in America, it quite works quite well for him to stay up that evening and he works in the evening as well so so that's him doing his four he still does five days but that's how he makes it work and then more recently we've employed a nanny one afternoon a week as well which I was a bit reluctant at first but she's absolutely she's actually amazing she's great and normally that afternoon I'll be here so so yeah so that's how we're making it work at the moment it's I tell you what it's not easy and it would make sense financially for him to be the main caregiver but I think I don't want that, if I'm honest. I want to be here with him. And the world's not there yet. But it's also it's also about mental health. Like, you know, if it, for, for Stuart's mental health and your mental health, like so many women, when they have children, they talk about having mm-hmm. a kind of identity yes. crisis. But I get the feeling that your work is actually a very valid and healthy part of your identity. It is. It is. But I tell you the guilt, the the mum guilt, like people talk about this phrase, mum guilt. I get it if I do get it if I don't. So if I go out and do a day's work, I feel guilty for leaving the baby. If I turn down a job, I feel guilty for turning down a job. If I work in the home, then I feel guilty because I can hear him and, you know, my baby's crying and making noise and I'm effectively ignoring him and let somebody else look after him. But if I work outside the home, then I feel guilty that I'm not here. If it, so, you know, that mum guilt, you just have to, I think you just have to find a way to learn to accept it because it's a really strong, mm. guilty feeling that I get whatever I do. So yeah, it's tricky, but we're getting there. And I think, you know, when I actually talk to other mums about it, what I always say is, you know, that baby really just needs you to be the best you that you can be so the best thing for the baby is generally whatever the best thing for you as a mother is and I'm so lucky that I have options you know a lot of mums have to return to work maybe when they don't want to because they need to for financial reasons whereas other mums might want to return to work but because of the cost of childcare, they're not able to so I am really lucky that you know it's kind of first world problems here I am deliberating and feeling guilt but I've got choice over how much I work and, you know, and what work I do to some extent. Hmm. I don't know if I believe in first world problems anymore. I think that, I think uh, it's okay to be where you're at. And I, and I really appreciate you sharing the fact that you, that you do feel conflicted and struggle. I think that will help people a lot to hear that you're going through that. And I, like you, pretty much to anyone who I, who is struggling with those kind of conflicts feel that, the best thing you can give children is you being happy and you actually, I think it's good to teach children about being selfish. I think that's one of the things that particularly mums have had taken away from them for such a long time, Zoe, that actually it's okay. And it will be very good for Lisbon to grow up 
seeing what it is to have boundaries and seeing what it is to continue to have a career. I, I'm so sad that we're running out of time, but I think it would be really fantastic if you could share with our community your top tips to look after your vagina. That can be in general or during pregnancy. Ooh, top tip. I think what I'd like to do, if I can, is, I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast before, but explain what is the vagina? Because I think yes. a lot of people get really confused. Um, they they say vagina when they mean their vulva. So the vagina quite simply is the tube. You could describe it as a tube that starts at the vaginal opening and ends at the cervix. So it's the internal part that you can't see, that if you wanted to feel what it feels like, you'd insert your fingers inside. That's the vagina. Where a tampon goes, it goes in the vagina. Whereas the vulva is everything that's on the outside. So the labia minora, the labia majora, the clitoral hood and the glands of the clitoris. And whilst we're talking about the clitoris, that gets its own little section as well, because I think we often think of the clitoris as that tiny little P-shaped bit Whereas actually the clitoris is this wonderful, glorious organ that most of it, I mean, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Um, and there are doctors campaigning for the clitoris to actually be included in, in medical textbooks. Because can you believe that most medical textbooks actually just show the glands of the clitoris, the tiny little pea bit, they don't show the rest of it. So there are doctors out there who actually have never been taught the anatomy of of the clitoris and maybe even we maybe even we could share this clip and we could overlay a picture of the wonderful organ that is the clitoris so that's just a little bit of an anatomy lesson in case anyone didn't know the full name i believe you're probably going to need to correct me is the clitoral urethral complex because it goes the the the, the hood and the glands go back through the vagina wall that you just des- described and come out to the back of the would be the front wall of one's vagina, but the back of the clitoral glands. And that's more than likely where you would have your G-spot if you have enough nerves and sensation there to have a G-spot and then spreads out. It's got these kind of beautiful wings and um, definitely going to put an image up and, and share your description of it. One of the things that I find this information is very new, Zoe. Like, you know, it is It is only quite recently that we've started to understand actually the width, depth, breadth of the, the clitoral urethral complex. But the, the thing that I think is um, really interesting is we need to start looking at how surgery is done around that area of a woman's body. I don't know if you know much about this, but we've got quite a few women emailing and texting and DMing us on the happy vagina saying that actually they don't think surgeons take into account enough this vast epic thing that is the clitoris. Yeah. And I guess that would make sense, wouldn't it? If the, you know, what we still see in medical textbooks, anatomy textbooks, they've completely ignored the 99% of that, of that organ So in terms of what to do to look after it, well, I'm a doctor, so I've got to give you what the evidence-based answer that question is. Masturbate? (laughs) Well, you can, yeah. First and foremost is pretty much in terms of products, leave it well alone. Don't douche, don't put anything inside it other than things that give you sexual pleasure, tampons, fingers, but, you know, don't be putting any perfumed products in there. Don't be putting any... I don't know, all these like, you know, crazy gadgets and devices that 
blah, blah, blah. Meant to be cleaning you, making you a cleaner woman. You are clean. You are a goddess, exactly as you are. Exactly. The vagina is a self-cleaning organ. So, so that's first and foremost. But yeah, masturbate, masturbation, self-pleasure. Absolutely. When you masturbate, even if you don't orgasm, but if you do orgasm as well, you get the most incredible cocktail of chemicals released from your brain all at the same time. So you get oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, endorphins. So chemicals that alleviate pain, that make you feel good, that make you feel happy, that make you feel love. Whether you're in a relationship with a partner, a sexual partner or not, you know, we have definitely ignored the opportunity to make ourselves feel good through self-pleasure. And self-pleasure can be different things for different people. It doesn't necessarily have to be stimulating your clitoris to try and achieve orgasm. It can be giving yourself a sensual massage. It can be, you know, touching yourself in places that feel good in the bath, whatever feels good for the person. So yeah. We do know the happy vagina, the vagina is not everything, but we call it the happy vagina. So actually the happy vagina has got regal status. (laughs) (laughs) It has. But you know, it's your body. It's your vagina. It's your vulva. It's your clitoris. You own it. You can do what you want with it. And if you do something that makes you feel good, then there are, as a doctor, I can say that there are proven health benefits to doing that. So go for it. Final question. What makes your vagina happy today? Dr. Zoe Williams. Oh, what makes my vagina happy today? I'm going to have to give that one to my steward, aren't I? Yes! <laughs> my steward. After, you know, Lisbon's five months old, so we're just getting back into the stage where I can say Stuart's allowed back in there. And yes, he still makes my vagina happy. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, amazing. And I'm, I'm, I'm honoured to hear that you've taken time to get back there as well, because I think historically, there's been some women who felt they needed to get back to it sooner than they felt ready because the education for women wasn't there and the the support and the emotional wisdom to say, listen to that area of your body, do it when you're ready. And Zoe is now ready. I'm ready. And you know, I think there are so many ways after you've had a baby, obviously, you know, you thought of penetrative sex is just like, no, thank you very much for quite a while. But there are so many other ways in which you can be intimate with each other. And and Stuart and I actually, probably from what was right for us, we we were quite intimate with each other probably from just a few weeks afterwards, but that didn't look like penetrative sex for, for quite mm. a while. The other thing that I've been very patient with my body with, and I'm very proud of myself, is getting back to exercise after having a baby. I honestly, I was running up until eight months and I thought, you know, probably by two months after having the baby, I'll be running again and lifting weights. And um, I'm just sort of getting back to those types of activities now. So it was my pelvic health physio who's educated me a lot about how it really does take time for your body to recover and taking back to high impact activities too early can increase your risk of problems in the future. So yeah, that's something I didn't know as a doctor, just how long it takes for everything to get back to normal. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're so welcome. Dr. Zoe Williams. I am a little bit in love with you. I think that when you come back to work, you're going to get an onslaught from the Happy Vagina community. Where do I sign up with Dr. Zoe Williams? (laughs) (laughs) She's the future. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. 
I'm Mika Simmons. That was Dr. Zoe Williams. This is the Happy Vagina podcast. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Don't forget to go and check out Percy Health, the exciting new platform providing access to extremely affordable, super high quality cancer experts on demand. They offer everything from psychosexual therapy, physiotherapy, menopause advice, and so much more. Just go to www.percyhealth.com. Look, then book. It really is that simple. Cancer isn't on your terms, but the care you get should be. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.